There is no good time. The most important thing is to get started because once you get started, you'll begin learning. Um, so if you are thinking about founding a startup, just do it. Welcome to Lawagon Live. This week, we're talking to Alice Bentink. Alice started her career at McKinsey and Company and went on to co-found Entrepreneur First, an organization that helps the world's most ambitious technologists build their own tech startups from scratch. They have more investments in AI than any other fund in Europe. She also set up Code First Girls, which is a not-for-profit that's taught over 5,000 women to code for free while still at university. She's a really inspirational woman and has some amazing stories. So sit back and enjoy. Entrepreneur First was founded um, by me and my co-founder Matt almost eight years ago in London. And we see ourselves as talent investors. Um, so eight years ago, we took a slightly different approach to building companies. So rather than investing um, in teams with ideas, well, companies that already exist, we wanted to provide funding to individuals who wanted to be a founder, but didn't have those necessary bits to get funding, such as a team and an idea. And I think there was definitely this um, assumption that those two things, teams and ideas, were the easy bits. Uh, of course, anyone, while they're working full-time and have a million other things going on in their life, can find somebody who wants to co-found with them at exactly the right time, on exactly the same idea, with exactly the right complementary skill set. And of course, they'll easily find that, and they'll also be able to think really deeply about an idea and do customer development while working in a full-time job. Um, this is all just really hard. Founding a startup is hard. And so, at Entrepreneur First, we wanted to go back to the very, very beginning and say, okay, well, there are so many ambitious, talented individuals who should be founders, but there are just structural barriers that mean that they can't be. Um, so EF basically removed those structural barriers. So we have a nine-month program that invests in you as an individual. We help you find a co-founder. So you start the program with 99 other um, selected, committed, um, exceptional individuals. Uh, we help you develop an idea, and then we invest in what you create, um, and then help you go on to seed and Series A. Nice. And so um, when you're selecting founders to take onto the programme, what are the key attributes you look for in those founders? So there are three really easy things that we look for, and one very hard thing to look for. Um, so the easy things are smart. It really helps if you are smart. Um, <laughs> uh, and sometimes people tell me that this is very lazy, as in looking for uh, clever people, um, because it seems very obvious. But the reason why being smart matters, and we use the word smart rather than clever, because I think clever has a lot of connotations connected to academia. Um, the reason we say smart is uh, you need to be able to problem solve, and your ability and speed at problem solving um, pretty much defines how good a founder you will be. If you can quickly and effectively solve millions of different problems, many of which are outside your comfort zone, you'll probably be okay to some extent. If you can't do that, then I wouldn't try. Um, <laughs> then it, then it, can be, it will be very hard to be a founder. So being smart helps. Being skilled helps. So at EF, um, we work with technologists um, or with individuals with technical backgrounds. So um, about 30% of the people that join us have a computer science uh, PhD or some sort of advanced um, technical education. Uh, and then we also take a bunch of people who have sort of a lighter technical background. Um, but you need to have a skill that you're bringing to the table. We also take about 20% of people with a domain background. Um, and this is less of a skill, it's more of an area of expertise. But one of the things we're looking for is, what are you bringing to the table? Um, and then the third thing is committed. You have to be 100% committed to do this. So to join EF, you need to quit everything else in your life. Um, it doesn't just mean your job. Uh, <laughs> 
Running a startup, building a startup, um, not only takes over your life, but most importantly, it takes over your brain space. And I think this is one of the reasons why we believe it's very hard to run a startup on the side, because unless you're literally doing a job that requires no amount of brain power at all, um, it's very, very hard to have the creative problem-solving space in your head that you need uh, to be able to actually build something that can be successful and that can scale and have impact. So those are the three easy things. So smart, skilled, committed. The hard thing for us to test is, uh, we call it contrarianism. Um, so if you're smart, skilled and committed, you could be a great management consultant or accountant or you know, whatever. Um, so what is the kind of extra special bit that makes somebody a founder? And what we see is that kind of displays itself in different ways in different people. Um, so sometimes it's being super competitive, um, people who just have this kind of almost need, not desire, but like a need to win, and they've won at really weird things. I think the weirdest answer I've ever had at interview was I said, I asked somebody, you know, like, what are you, what are you competitive at? What are you trying to win? And he was like, life. I was like, ah, interesting. <laughs> tell, me, <laughs> tell me a little bit more about that. Um, and he really was like just an absolutely wonderfully insane person, um, but just so committed to this idea that he wanted to achieve more with his life than anyone else. Um, so competitiveness, obsessiveness, people who get kind of slightly caught up on something and their friends are like, oh, will you stop going on about that? And they, they just really want to obsess about something. Um, a little dose of megalomania. Um, helps. So people who are interested in power and interested in the kind of power and impact they, they could have. Um, personal exceptionalism, so individuals who do believe that they have a sort of unfair advantage in life and believe that there is an unfair reason why they can win. Um, I think broadly the kind of category that all of these things fall, fall under is often people who at various points in their life have felt like an outsider or a bit different or misunderstood um, because they're not willing to accept the status quo and they're not willing to accept the kind of traditional career path that's put out in front of them. Um, there's nothing wrong with that career path and most people should go down that career path. Like, not everyone should be a founder. It is not always a pleasant or wonderful thing. Um, and so it's finding the people who understand that even though it's not a pleasant or wonderful thing, there is a sort of a need and desire for them um, for this to be part of their lives. Is that quite difficult then? Because some of those personality traits aren't necessarily people who are very easy to work on a level with. No. <laughs> How hard is it then, because you, through Entrepreneur First, you put people together with co-founders. Mm. Is it very difficult to match co-founders based upon potentially very clashing personalities? Yeah, yes. Um, so we have learned a huge amount about how to build teams from scratch. Um, and we were told for a long time that it would be impossible. Um, but actually, our, interestingly, our breakup rate post-seed funding is lower than what you would see in organically formed teams. Um, we did at some point back in 2013, try literally matching people up. Um, and we'd be like, right, you two work together. And they'd be like, but we, we don't want to work together. We don't like working together. Be like, no, trust us. This is going to work. And they'd be like, but we, we don't want to work together anymore. Be like, no, keep going. Um, it doesn't work. Uh, what we now do is basically, if you have 100 people in a room, it gives people the opportunity to experiment with different individuals um, and to try out different co-founding relationships. I'd say most people come into EF with a very fixed view of what they want their co-founder to be. You know, I want somebody who's good in this technology, who wants to work on this idea, who you know, has this background and this many years experience. The people who don't build teams stick to that idea very fixedly. Um, the people who do build teams uh, use the sort of EF process, so you have eight weeks to try out different co-founders, use that process to basically experiment and update their view of what a co-founder is. Um, I mean, we do, I mean, people do say ridiculous things, like people often say when we're 
converting them to join EF, they're like, yeah, I mean, my biggest concern is just that I'll just be the best person in the cohort. Um, <laughs> and the, the good thing is they join the cohort and actually they um, eat humble pie and realise that that isn't the case. Um, I'm making the people that we work with sound um, very, extre very extreme. And I think the amazing thing about the kind of people that we work with is that um, I think so often there is an assumption that to be a successful founder, you have to be arrogant and you have to be nasty and you have to be um, sort of kind of in people's faces. And I would say that uh, reliably, the people who are most successful in each cohort are very socially adept, um, are often quite charming uh, and have the biggest growth mindset. And they are basically there to learn. Um, so they can have kind of quite strong views about how wonderful they are, but they also understand that they are there to learn. I think this idea of, um, you know, if you are going through something like the wagon where you are willing to put yourself through what is probably quite an uncomfortable experience of learning a skill you don't know that well <laughs> or don't feel naturally inclined to maybe, um, it's that kind of growth mindset where you understand, for me to be a good founder, I need to know how to do this. And so they're willing to put themselves through that pain. And um, you spoke earlier a little bit about it's very important for your founders to have a technical background. What is the sort of the playoff between technical background and sort of corporate experience? What what combination of those two things mm. make a good founder? Uh, so I suppose, caveat, we produce a very certain kind of business. Um, so the majority of our companies are building... Um, what we call deep tech startups. So they are working on some form of defensible technology. So about 70% of our startups use some form of artificial intelligence in what they're doing. Um, we have a lot of people with very advanced education um, and very advanced academic backgrounds. Uh, and so we leverage a lot of that expertise in the kind of startups that we create. I suppose as a more general sort of theme on, on how do you balance technical skills and, and commercial experience, um, totally depends on the kind of startup you're looking to create. So if you want to build something that has um, AI or blockchain or augmented reality or clean meat or whatever it is at the core, unless you are a world expert in it, don't do it. Um, if you are going to use some sort of hard fundamental technology, you really do need to be in the top 10% the, of the, the kind of world population of those people to work on that. So I would encourage each of you to think about what are you exceptional at? Um, and how can you kind of put that into uh, into um, uh, how can that be the core that you, core of your startup? So it means if, if you have a more lightly technical background, um, I think that is really useful in terms of um, being able to understand what you want to produce, how long it takes, how to interact with other technical people on your team. But it probably means you shouldn't produce something that is based on. Uh, something that is totally beyond, beyond your um, area of knowledge. What we always say for people that want to be in a kind of more CEO role rather than a CTO role is you need to be able to understand what you're building so that you can have a vision for what you can produce. If you don't understand what you're building, you can't have a vision for what you want to produce. And there are so many different kinds of businesses that you can produce, whether it's tech-enabled, whether it's deep tech. Um, and so it's really just what is the best kind of startup for you to produce. There was some amazing... Um, uh, first Round Capital, which was kind of one of the pioneer seed firms in um, Silicon Valley, they uh, released a report last year, it might even be the year before now, of 10 years of data of investing in something like 300 or 500 startups. And it looks at the likelihood of success based on different co-founding teams. And so if you want to build a B2B enterprise startup, actually much better to have a kind of fully technical team as a founding team. Um, if you want to build a consumer startup, actually technical uh, founding teams that had um, sort of people with advanced technical backgrounds did worse. And you're actually much better to have um, a non-technical team founding those kind of startups. So you need to just think about what is the right startup for you to create.
It would be really interesting to hear a bit of a, maybe two profiles, maybe one of someone who came in with a really high technical background, what they went on to do, and then someone who came in with a bit more of a wild card and what they went on to do, so maybe two founders of success. Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the technical backgrounds, so uh, one of our big exits was a company called Magic Pony Technology, um, and this was... Uh, founded by two guys who were both at Imperial, um, but they didn't meet at Imperial, and they met when they joined EF. Um, and uh, Zihan had just done a medical imaging PhD at Imperial, um, and he went through a sort of very typical kind of ideation process where he knew the technology he wanted to work on, but he didn't know what to apply it to. And so he uh, initially looked at um, creating an app that would allow people to find um, interior design objects, so, you know, better chairs or better tables or whatever it is. Now, from a technology point of view, he was doing something really interesting, but actually the company that wins in that space is probably going to be somebody who really knows how to nail consumer marketing and digital marketing. Um, so he eventually pivoted off that idea. He then looked at detecting fraudulent luxury handbags. Um, so using computer vision to tell if something really was a Hermes handbag or a Burberry handbag spent a bunch of time talking to luxury goods companies, realised they actually didn't care as much as he thought they did. Um, and uh, he then uh, ended up co-founding with um, this guy, Rob, uh, and they basically went back to the drawing board and said, OK, what can this technology do? We are both technologists. How can we kind of um, push this technology as much as possible? And what they ended up producing was a um, new form of video processing technology. Um, so completely same technology the whole way through, but a completely different application. Um, they built that into Magic Pony, uh, which is a ridiculous name. Um, and that was, they started having customer conversations with Twitter who wanted to um, basically compress videos that were being tweeted uh, and that conversation turned from a customer conversation into an acquisition conversation. So they were acquired for 150 million 18 months after they joined EF. Um, so it's one of those kind of slightly crazy outcomes in that it's definitely not one of those stories that is easy to replicate. Uh, I think it's also very much a moment in time. And I think there is also a bigger question about, for Europe in particular, what are the kind of companies that we're trying to create? Um, and there is that balance of teams being acquired really, really early before they've kind of hit their stride and reached their potential versus teams being able to kind of flourish, raise the right capital and go on and build big, amazing things. Um, so I think one of the key things for Europe is to see $150 million not as a big success story, but as a stepping stone on the path to Europe becoming an incredible ecosystem. Um, enough propaganda. Moving on to a, another um, individual. So Phoebe uh, joined EF. She'd been at Aviva um, and had worked as a kind of insurance uh, um, manager for a number of years. Um, and then she went and did Makers Academy. Um, and so when she joined us, she had a domain background in insurance, but she also had a sort of um, a coding bootcamp background as well. Uh, and what she's built is an app called Broly, um, which is a uh, app that allows you to store and manage all of your insurance in one place. Um, so it's definitely not as technically complex as many of the things that we uh, produce during EF, but it really leverages her background and knowledge in terms of how broken and just, um, sort of uh, uh, hard it is for consumers to manage their insurance 
products. Um, so again, it really, at EF we talk about edge, like what is your competitive advantage? What is your edge compared to other founders? And Zhan's edge was very much a technical edge. Um, Phoebe's edge was very much a kind of domain edge and really understanding the kind of consumer experience of uh, insurance. Um, and both of them have done uh, very well. Phoebe hasn't exited just yet. She's still building, uh, building Broly, but raised a really good seed round um, at the point where she left EF. Um, and we're still really excited to see what she creates. That's really fantastic to hear. And so, um, with there are lots of people in the room who I guess are thinking about moving careers or are just moving on from boot camps and maybe aren't ready to go straight in at founder level. Through EF, are there other opportunities which aren't just maybe? Is it possible to join a team of people developing an app rather than going right at the top? Yeah, and so I mean we've got sort of 200 plus companies in our portfolio now, so they are always looking to hire, and I'm sure would be um, keen to speak to any of you. I suppose if you are thinking about founding a company, um, I would encourage you to think about um, when is the right time. Um, I spend my life speaking to people who are waiting for the right time to found a company. And unfortunately, most people won't found a company. Um, and most people shouldn't, and that is fine. But if you really feel like founding a company is something that you desperately want to do with your life, there is no good time. There really is no good time. Um, you will never be in the right financial position. You will never have a strong enough network. You'll never have enough skills. Matt and I started um, EF when we were 25, and I cannot believe that we got away with it for so long. Um, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing, and we didn't understand how venture capital worked. Um, we started EF as a not-for-profit, um, because, you know, why not? Uh, was not the right structure for us. Um, but for the first three years, we basically just worked stuff out before we kind of hit our stride. Um, so there is, there is no good time. The most important thing is to get started because once you get started, you'll begin learning. And you can't really learn to be a founder by um, being a first employee or working in a company. Um, so if you are thinking about founding a startup, just do it. Um, take the plunge, see what happens. It may not work out, that is totally fine. People will want to employ you more having had that experience. Um, so yeah, stop, um, stop finding excuses. So your other project is Code First Girls. Mm. Um, and so could you give us a bit of a background on what Code First Girls is and what inspired you to start? Sure. Um, so uh, first cohort of EF came through. We got about 20% applications from women. And being um, naive and a woman, I was like, this must be easy to fix. I'm sure we can get 50% applications from women. Um, the only thing we have to do is set up a program to teach women to code, and then they'll all want to be founders. Um, so the original idea for Code First Girls was that we can upskill women while they're at university, um, give them basic coding skills uh, so that they feel more confident and more equipped uh, to become founders. Um, Code First Girls has been wildly successful, so much so that we actually span it out of EF as its own not-for-profit. Um, it hasn't been wildly successful at uh, increasing the number of female founders. Um, it has been wildly successful at um, teaching lots and lots of women to code um, for free and giving them exposure at university. Uh, so we're in about 30 different universities across the UK. Um, by 2020, we'll, we will have taught 20,000 women to code for free. Um, the coding course is kind of over six weeks. You do two hours um, a week. Uh, and the Code First Girls alumni, alumni are just this incredible community that seem to be seeping absolutely everywhere. Um, and I think one of the things that is really, um, one of the kind of driving beliefs behind it was that particularly when um, EF first started back in 2011, um, it really felt like 
coming to any tech event was a bit of like coming into a boys club. Everyone seemed to know each other. Um, it felt quite sort of masculine cliquey. Uh, and I remember when Code First Girls first started, um, the various kind of cohort participants would message each other on the on our Facebook groups being like, who's going to this conference? Can we all meet outside beforehand and like, you know, walk in together or like go to this event together or whatever it is. And now I go to events and there's just Code First Girls alumni everywhere. Um, and so I think there's uh, there's lots of positive, in, in, positive impacts that Code First Girls is having. One is we are seeing a great conversion from doing the kind of taste of, of uh, Code First Girls and then going on to become a developer. Um, and then secondly, just getting more women at a very early stage. So while they're at university making their career choices, interested in working in tech, working in startups, um, and thinking about becoming a developer. And so what do you think, the, um, what, what is stopping women from making the step from the, building up their technical background to becoming founders? Um, well, I think my original assumption that the reason that women aren't becoming founders is because they aren't technical was wrong um, and was an oversimplification of the problem. I think it is a really complicated problem and I think there are so many societal factors that constantly challenge women um, about whether they should or want to be founders in a way that men aren't. Um, I think when we see uh, female founders do well, they do exceptionally well, often because they have to push so much harder than their male peers. And I think, unfortunately, that is still true. Um, I think the the challenge is that a lot of the stuff that you read at the moment in the press around being a female founder is how hard it is, how much sexual harassment there is. Um, it just makes it sound shit, basically. And I'm sure if I'd read the press, um, when I read the kind of press that is out now when I was 25, I wouldn't have thought this was going to be a great career path. And I think that, unfortunately, the conversations become so negative, it means that we've stopped talking about why it's an amazing career path for anyone, regardless of gender. Um, but I think one of the reasons why it's amazing as a woman is one of the things I love is you choose who you work with. So if you don't want to work with um, people who have problem with women or who are sexist, don't hire them, um, which is <laughs> an amazing position to be in. Uh, it's, it is amazingly flexible. You do have more control over your work. Um, you'll just be working really hard all the time, but at least you can work out which hours you want to work when. Um, it is unbelievably fulfilling and challenging. Um, and I think that uh, giving or ensuring that women have access to career paths that are really fulfilling and challenging is one of the important parts of keeping them in the workforce for as long as possible. So I think we need to generally have more of a story around why this is such a incredible career path. Um, and yeah, there are there is a bunch of like shit stuff, and um, I think that's kind of true for lots of different types of um, underrepresented groups who are founding startups. You know, people don't see potential in you in the same way that they do with a white 22-year-old man who looks like Mark Zuckerberg. It is just different. Um, but that doesn't mean that it isn't still an amazing career path. Um, and I think in the last year, we have seen venture capitalists in particular completely change their perspective on female founders. Um, and the more that we can help them to see that women are undervalued assets, i.e. incredibly valuable, uh, the better. And so the, the, the label of female founder, do you find that is, do you find it as a, as a helpful label? Or do you find that always sort of you know, being a founder, you're, the main thing people focus on is that you're a woman rather than skills as a founder? I think, you know, part of feminism is women being able to uh, express themselves in a way that they feel is fit. I personally don't like being called a female founder and um, I don't think it's particularly helpful and typically 
So for example, the press, if I wanted to talk about being a woman, I could do press all day, every day. Um, but I only do press on the company. So if the press want to talk to me about EF and how the company is expanding and growing, I'm more than happy to do that and to role model um, what it's like to be a Series A funded founder with uh, 200 million of um, money under management. Uh, but I, I think sometimes that conversation is useful, but I think let's just highlight amazing female role models or just highlight amazing role models who happen to be female. Um, and would you have any advice? Because, yeah, as I said, lots of people here are thinking about making the next move, moving on to you know, setting up startups, that kind of thing. What is your advice so, for now for people wanting to do that? Um, well, firstly, as I've said, do it. Um, if you think you want to be a founder, take the leap um, and uh, you won't regret it. The downside is so, so low. If you think about it as opportunity cost, most people think focus on the opportunity cost of doing it. Shit, if I'm going to be a founder, I'm not going to have um, a salary. I'm going to miss out on this promotion. I'm going to, you know, a long list of, of things that you feel that you're giving up. But if you really believe in yourself and believe that you could be an amazing founder and have something that you really uh, want to work on, um, think about the opportunity cost of not doing that, of not bringing that product to the world, of not having that potential impact on millions of people's lives. It's so easy these days to have impact on millions of people's lives. Um, this has not been true in history before. It's only in the kind of last 15 years that that is true, that you can be sat in London in your bedroom having impact on millions of people's lives. So think about the opportunity cost of not doing it. Um, and then if you do do it, uh, when you think about what you want to work on, do you think about what is your edge? What is your advantage as a founder compared to other founders? What are you uniquely good at? Um, we see lots and lots of people who apply to EF and join EF and who have come from one particular background and then they want to start a startup in a completely unrelated field. That normally doesn't work particularly well, largely because they don't know how hard the new field is. They know their previous field so well, they can see all of the barriers about why it won't work. Um, in this new shiny field, they can't see any of the problems, but it's because they actually don't know enough about that field yet. Um, you will have to learn so many new skills as a founder, you will need to take whatever competitive advantage you already have. So leverage your skills, leverage your knowledge, and make sure that you are using those edges that kind of make you special. Um, and then good luck. Um, and if you, <laughs> if you are sort of at that stage where you're thinking about becoming a founder um, and you're looking for very early stage funding as an individual, um, uh, do apply to EF, um, join EF.com. Uh, we have cohorts starting every quarter somewhere in the world. Um, and if you believe that you have the sort of potential to be a sort of globally important founder, then we would love to talk to you. And so with, you said it's really important to give it a go, setting up your startup. How do you know? Because it's very difficult to identify what your own your own personality traits are mm. when it's possible, but it's difficult. How do you know when you should give up? And if you've started a startup, started another one, when do you, when, at what point do you realise that you're not a founder? And how do you know? Um, that's a really interesting question, and I think a really really hard one. Um, we see a lot of our. There, there, is a, there is a sort of resilience game here that um, it can take quite a while to get it right. And sometimes it's just who sticks at it the longest. Um, you have to be smart as you stick at it. I think people who keep going in the same direction with the same product to the same customer um, without taking any feedback or iteration on that, uh, I mean, then you are wasting your time um, if you aren't seeing traction. Um, but we do see 
really good founders who don't make it for quite a while and they're trying something and they're learning from that and they're trying something and they're learning from that and they're trying something learning from that the key is when you pivot to not do random pivots into totally new spaces but to use what you've learned and use that to um, edge in different directions um, we've been going for such a long time now that we've seen enough companies go through where for sort of a year, two years, you're really like, oh, don't know how they're going to salvage this one. And then suddenly they hit their stride. Um, but it's always down to the, the kind of resilience of the founders um, and their openness to learning. So they have that growth mindset. They're still talking to customers. Um, I think the people who should give up are the ones who don't even know they should give up. Unfortunately, it's where they've been uh, going on the same idea with the same um, solution for so long and it's clear no one wants it. But this is where you need to have advisors. You need to have people who are not corporate advisors, so not somebody who's worked in a big company, but somebody who's worked with startups who can basically see whether it's working or not. Because um, it is messy and um, things will look really shit for a very long time. Uh, but there are kind of indicators that you can identify to know whether you should keep going or not. Um, and so on a, on a sort of side note, in the tech world in general, what are the things that you are most excited about at the moment? Um, in terms of technologies? In terms or of technology or business or anything? So I suppose two things, one on technology, one on business model. So in terms of technology, we are seeing a real spike in applications from people with biotech backgrounds. I think biotech is coming to the point um, that uh, artificial intelligence was about sort of six, seven years ago, where the cost of producing a company in that space has just fallen rapidly. Um, and so we're beginning to see some really interesting companies come through EF that are working on clean meat, new types of membranes, um, just really, really interesting stuff that like two, three years ago we just would not have seen and it wouldn't have made sense for us to fund or get involved in. So I think the kind of falling cost of that is really fascinating. I think also when you think about the kind of impact that you can have, um, the biotech space, particularly when it interacts with medtech as well, um, it really has such a positive impact on both uh, the world and uh, in terms of the environment but also um, uh, people's health. Uh, in terms of business models, so often people talk about innovation and they mean that relating to technology. Um, you need to innovate in technology and like do something new and all the rest of it. Often business models are um, undervalued in terms of innovation. Lots of people will look at the, <laughs> the bookshelf of business models, pick one and apply it to their business. Um, having an interesting and defensible business model can be a fantastic way of creating a moat and creating uh, a barrier um, and uh, also creating value in ways that people didn't think, um, think was possible. I think one of the things that's particularly relevant for EF at the moment that's really exciting is seeing um, uh, income sharing agreements coming through. So um, Lambda School, which is a coding school in the, in the US, um, does income sharing agreements. So uh, the course is free, but then you share a portion of your income for a couple of years after you graduate. Um, we see ourselves as a talent investor, and I think any sort of innovation in how um, people unlock talent and kind of fund talent um, at the sort of beginning of their careers is really interesting. Um, so I'm keen to see uh, income sharing agreements come to the uh, come to the UK. Um, I think it'll be absolutely fascinating. Thank well, you. Thank you so much, Alice. It's been so interesting, and I think we're all thank you for having me. Sorry. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, especially, I think, well, for us, the Wagon cohort, it's so nice to have that in so the, 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 the injection of positivity and the advice to avoid looking at failure is really, really nice because we're at the, we're the precipice now, so we do need to do that. Um, yeah, so I think we'd like to come together to thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Wagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button.